I guess, most of last week's sermon in Deuteronomy 32. And I'd like to go back there for a few minutes at the beginning of this one. I think I said a few minutes last week, and it took the whole sermon, but I'll try to get out of there fairly quickly today. Deuteronomy 32. We saw in this chapter that God is very concerned about our obedience to him and a covenant we might make with him. But I want to drop down to verse 35. Deuteronomy 32, 35, where God says, To me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. If we did not obey God, if we do not follow his ways, in due time our foot would slide. Now, there probably have been times when the pavement was wet or the floor was wet, when you tried to walk very carefully, and yet in due time, your foot would slide and you could fall. There was a fellow sitting here as I look out who was uh, riding a skateboard, I guess, this past week, and his foot did slide in due time, and now his ankle and his foot and everything are black and blue uh, because he slid and fell. And that has happened to the church, and it's about to happen to the physical nations of Israel. We need to consider that. I'm going to entitle this sermon today, being the third in the series of health and healing. Spiritual sickness prevents physical healing. And even as Israel has sinned and is now imbibing of plagues of Egypt and all kinds of diseases, we as a church are suffering the same thing. We thought we were okay, and yet in due time our foot slid and we fell on our faces. The church is in critical danger right now. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. And it certainly arrived upon us, and it is continuing do you see signs of healing throughout the church? Or do you occasionally see more signs of splintering, cracking, and falling apart? We've experienced some of that ourselves recently over some doctrinal things that we came to understand. So it falls upon us as well as everyone else. So I think we need to deeply consider, for the Eternal shall judge his people and relent himself for his servants when he sees that their power is gone. That reminds me of Daniel 12, where it says, when the power of the Holy people has been scattered, God is going to take a hand. And we see that power being scattered today. God is not going to relent. He's not going to let up until he sees our power destroyed until there's not one stone left upon another, to use another analogy from Matthew 24, 1 and 2. And he shall say, Where are their gods, their rocks, in whom they trusted? Now this could be in any category of life. Any area in which we turned to something other than to God and to those things which he has placed here for us to use in a natural sense, and it certainly applies to health and healing. 
Where are their gods? Our nation, as a whole, has turned themselves over to the gods of healing of this world. But our disease and our sickness continues unabated. In fact, the statistics for cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and many, many other maladies are growing instead of diminishing. The plague is getting worse day by day, month by month, and year by year. The problems within the church are getting worse day by day, year by year. Where are the gods in whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. You see, God is driving at something here. When he starts scattering, diminishing, laying problems upon us, then he stands back and says, who did you depend upon? Where are your gods now? Who's going to save you now? We thought we were safely under the umbrella of God's good favor, his grace, his protection, and then suddenly we find ourselves blown apart. Now God is in the position right now, having done that, of saying, what did you look to? Where are you? What's going on? That is why it is so dangerous for us to try to recreate Worldwide Church of God right now. That is why it is so dangerous for us to look only at what we learned there and not begin to diligently search the scriptures and find out what else, what, I started to say what else, but what is wrong. Obviously the answers we had or thought we had 20 years ago were not sufficient, were they? Yet so many, many people today say, I'm going back just to that. Is that enough? If that was enough, why did God blow us apart? We need to be seeking, searching, and questioning and finding out the spiritual answers. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. God can kill, he can resurrect. God can wound and he can heal. Now, we have seen in previous sermons over the years now that God created the wound upon us. And only he can heal it. Many have stood up and said, I'm the one that you should follow. I can fix things. Now, let's look at the results. Has it been fixed? Is it fixed? Is it fixed even among us? Maybe we are on the right track, 
are starting to be on the right track, but I don't believe we're where we ought to be yet. I think we're headed in the right direction because we are seeking and searching and studying the Bible and praying perhaps more than we have in a long, long time. And that seeking of God is going to lead us in a right direction. But that's what we need to be doing. Is there anyone but God who can heal our wound, who can fix us? Let's go to Isaiah 1. I don't want to talk about physical healing so much today as I do the spiritual sickness and the spiritual healing that must take place before we're going to see much in the form of physical healing. The spiritual is always far more important than the physical. And sometimes physical illness, sickness, and wounding is what helps us get the spiritual in the right order. Sometimes being physically ill helps us begin to seek spiritual answers. Because on some level we understand that our relationship with God is not what it ought to be. Notice in Isaiah, verse 2 of chapter 1, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Eternal has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children. Now, if you nourish a child properly, what happens? It doesn't get sick. Sometimes you can do your part and problems will arise anyway. And that has always been the history of God and Israel. I have nourished and brought up children and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner and the ass his master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people does not think. The word is consider here, but it means think about Consider, uh, meditate on. God's people, for the most part today, brethren, are not thinking. They're merely reacting to pray, pay, and stay. They're putting their hands entirely in the hands of a ministry that has gone astray. We'll see that in a moment. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Eternal. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. They have gone away backward. We went downhill or backward from the direction we should be going. Now, how did we do that? We still had the Sabbath and the Holy Days and all of these forms, did we not? But what is Revelation 3 all about? It is a matter of spiritual pride and self-righteousness and thinking that we are okay. Not realizing the great contrast that is between us and God. Somehow, and it's a human thing to do, we tend to think that since we know of God and we're part of his called out ones and we keep the basics, that we are therefore okay. And we're making the same mistake that Job did. Job began to lose the sense 
of contrast between himself and God. And he almost, I guess, began to think that he was still in the flesh, but was like God. But we are so far from being like God, the contrast is so great. How? How? Did we ever become complacent and think we were okay? But it's human to wish to do that. It is human not to want to change. It is human not to want to seek a God whom you cannot see. We had much rather by nature talk to people than we had to God. We can see people. We can laugh with people. We can see them with our eyes, hear them with our ears, touch them with our hand. It's much easier to talk to people in that sense than it is to God. It's hard for God to be real to us. And Job made the mistake of thinking that he was okay. And God had to show him that he wasn't around when the stars and the earth were created. He wasn't around when the Leviathan was made. He had no clue how to do these things. And once he began to truly humble himself and pray for his brethren and realize that we are all far short of the glory of God, then God began to bless him again. But we have to get rid of our lip service and our self-righteousness and our spiritual pride and truly humble ourselves before God. Why should you be stricken anymore? We've been under the lash now for some years, have we not? And God says, why should you be stricken anymore? In other words, think. Find the answers as to why this has gone on and fix the problem. Now, it is much harder to fix something than it is to build something originally. Any of you who have done remodels on old homes worked much, much harder and in much more adverse conditions than when building a new home. Because you have to rip out the old and the rotten. You have to fix that which is already crooked. You have to patch... You have to fix plumbing and electric gone bad and outdated. It's much harder than it is to start fresh. Now, we became an old house spiritually, and there was rottenness in the walls. The termites had reached us, and our wiring was not sufficient for the current of God's Spirit to flow through. This old house was a-getting shaky. This old house was a-getting old, if you remember the song. Ain't got time to patch the windows or, or patch the roof and fix the window frame or however it went. We don't have time not to. There has to be a total renovation. We have to fix that which is wrong. Why would we be stricken anymore? We've got to put our head to the grindstone. 
We've got to fix some things. You'll revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. Starts with the ministry. The whole head has been, and for the most part, still is sick. The ministry needs to take note of Isaiah 1.5. I certainly do, and so do the rest. The head is sick. The whole heart faint. <coughs> we are weak-hearted. We are a spoiled, pampered people. We were spoiled and pampered under Herbert Armstrong in Worldwide. And we don't have heart now, for the most part, to do what is necessary to fix what is wrong. That is why we become discouraged and frustrated. The heart is not in it. That's why God says, turn to me with your whole heart. <clears throat> have you ever tried to do something you didn't really have your heart in? How difficult. I remember having to weed the grass burrs out of the lawn in our front yard in West Texas, such as it was, because the grass burrs grew faster, it seemed, than the grass. And my dad had a thing about those burrs. He wanted them all dug out. He didn't want them just mowed off. He wanted them dug out. That's been a long time ago, but I can remember how hard it was to sit out there and dig each one of those weeds out of that lawn by hand. My heart was not in it. I remember how easy it was, however, to pedal the town on a bicycle for little league practice. I mean, it was just as hot as the yard. I had to pedal harder than I had to dig, but my heart was in it. My heart was in playing baseball. I sweated just as much on the baseball field. I worked harder, ran, slid, skinned myself up. I didn't care. My heart was in it. Our heart has not been in serving God in the way that he wishes to be served, and that's why we find ourselves in this old house today. A temple that is worn, a temple that is falling apart, a temple that has to be rebuilt. <clears throat> the whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Some people blame it all on the ministry. No, from the sole of the foot all the way up to the head, it's sick. So it's the ministry, and it is the rest of the church as well. There is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, or closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Just raw sickness hanging out there, and no one has been really taking care of the wounds. The ministry, for the most part, throughout the Church of God, has no clue as to why what has happened has happened. 
and they are not taking steps to solve the problems. We had a man that got his fingers in a saw here a few days ago, and people converged there to try to help and put various things on his hand and bound it all up and have fixed it a few times since, for that matter, and it's healing. It appears to be healing quite well at this point. But the church hasn't had anyone to bind it up, to put ointments on it, to help. That's why we find ourselves in the plight we're in today. Now, if no one understands why we're this way, and they're not taking steps to fix it, they're just going on, for the most part, trying to do what Worldwide did, which God blew apart. We've been over this ground many times. But we need to understand how sick we have been, how self-righteous we have been, raising ourselves above the rest of the world, thinking we're doing just fine, when in reality the contrast between us and God is such a great gulf. And we've not had our heart truly in serving God. Let's go to Jeremiah 3. Or no, excuse me, Isaiah 3. I was already almost there. Isaiah 3. Isaiah 3, For behold, the Eternal, the Lord of hosts, has taken away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water. Now, bread and water are what? Symbolic in the New Testament of Christ's body and his blood. God has taken that away. Now, when you take away his blood or his spirit, not his blood here, the bread and the water, the living waters are the spirit of God. The Spirit of God essentially has been removed from the church. And with it, the bread, which represents his broken body for our healing. So when the Spirit is gone, and the bread is gone, we have spiritual problems and physical problems. <clears throat> and that is where we are today. Verse 8, for Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen. Speaking first to the church here again, not to the nation. Now the other is coming and coming quickly. I believe there's only one thing holding up the economy today. <clears throat> one thing that is preventing the disaster that is ahead of us. And I'm not talking about God just holding it up. But a physical reason. I'm not going to get into that today. Maybe I'll do a sermon on it soon. But the crash is coming because that reason for it being held up is going to be removed. And then physical Israel will be ruined and Judah fallen. Because their tongue and their doings are against the eternal to provoke the eyes of his glory. The show of their countenance does witness against them and they declare their sin as Sodom and they hide it not. Woe to their soul, for they have rewarded evil to themselves. We've done this to ourselves. We are the ones who became spiritually proud and complacent. When you have great pride, you become complacent. 
because you think that you are okay, you're above other people. Maybe you don't place yourself above God, but certainly we place ourselves above other people. This is something that people constantly do. As for my people, verse 12, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Those who should be elders are instead children spiritually. And the women, the churches, rule over the people. We need to be looking to God. Now that doesn't mean that the church should not be our mother and that our mother should lead us toward our father. That's the goal and the purpose of a mother, to lead to the father, not to get between the father and the children, but to point them to the father who himself should be the right kind of leader, the right kind of example of a loving father. Our father in heaven is that, but we have those leading us who are not leading us correctly. O oh, my people, they which lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. The Eternal stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. Our God is pleading with us in these scriptures. He's saying, look around. You need to seek answers from my word, not from those who have gone astray, because the head is sick and so are you. We must personally seek God. Don't you dare depend on me. You get on your knees and you put your head in your Bible and you build your relationship with God. I am only here to point you in that direction. I am not here to do it for you. I am here to guide you and direct you to the Word of God that you might live by every word of it. God stands to plead and to judge the people. The Eternal will enter into judgment with the ancients of His people. He will enter into judgment with the ministry. And He is quickly taking the flock away from the ministry. We'll see that in a moment in Jeremiah. I mean, in Ezekiel, I think I'm going to. Jeremiah would work too. And the princes thereof, for you have eaten up the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. God does not like what the ministry has done. He did not like the mansions in Pasadena, nor did he like the fine homes on Lake Loma in Big Sandy because that which should have been going to health went for jet airplanes, for fine homes, for fine buildings and gardens, rather than where it should have been going. What mean you that you beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor? That hasn't changed. That message of pray, pay, and stay is still being preached in many organizations of the greater church of God today. 
Just do what I say. Don't disagree with me. Send your money. We'll do the work, and you'll be the support, and you'll be in the kingdom of God because you're supporting us. Have you ever read in the Bible where that would make you a part of the kingdom of God? Isn't your obedience and what you do what God judges you by? Read Ezekiel 33. What mean you that you beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor? Who here does not have war stories about abuses and misuses, spiritually speaking and physically, of a ministry and the people in the church of God in the last 40 years? Every one of us probably has some of those stories. Moreover, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet. Now, he compares the church here. Now, we've tended to use this in the past only to speak of physical Israel and the women out there who dress like harlots and are trying to seduce the world to like them, look at them, whether it's a physical relationship or not. But that's not all that's here. In fact, that is not even the major thing that is here. We are far more important to God at this point than physical Israel. Spiritual Israel is the apple of his eye at this point. We're the ones he is most concerned about. But this reads like Revelation 3, only in a different analogy. Proud, haughty, wanton, arrogant, lifting ourselves up and thinking we were okay and have need of nothing. Isn't that the way Americans walk around also? We are the greatest. Let's fly our flag. Proud to be an American. Proud to be a Texan. No, we have to be meek and humble and thankful to be a people of God. There is no room for spiritual pride or physical pride. What do you have that you were not given? Starting with life itself. Would you have what you have physically had you not been born in a nation, in a nation promised blessings by, to, by God to Abraham? No. No, you wouldn't. The daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet. God is comparing the churches of God today, the daughters of Zion, read Hebrews 12, 22, and 23, to hookers on the street. That's what he's comparing the churches of God to or to women who want to draw looks to themselves, whether they're hookers or not. Therefore, the Eternal will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion. What's a scab? Isn't that a part of an illness, a sickness, a debility? God is pronouncing sickness upon us. 
the head of the daughters of Zion and the Eternal will discover their secret parts. Our nation as a whole, in its style and fashion, tries to show as much as they can without really showing. And isn't that what the daughters of Zion are doing? I do not want to be a part of that. You read the journal, and there are all kinds of ads in there about who is the most steadfast, who is the most righteous, who is the most like worldwide, who is the biggest, who is the best, who is the most united, who has the most life in it, who has the Philadelphian spirit of God more than anyone else, the righteous church of God, the over-righteous church of God, the Christian biblical church of God, on and on and on it goes. Well, that one, I didn't mean to throw a rock necessarily there. That one I don't think even advertises in the journal. Just names that come to my mind here. We go through there and they all have ads hawking their wares about who is the most righteous, who is the most uh, spiritually correct, who has the best doctrine, who has the best people, who has the best peace site? You won't see, they have right there in this month's issue a plea for all those to announce their peace sites. You won't see ours in there. Nor will you see an ad where we're trying to compare ourselves with the other daughters of Zion that we're the best, we're the finest, we're the most spiritual, we have the best doctrine. We are not going to hawk our wares and mince down the street, wiggling our little behinds, as if we were the best, you ought to look at us. But that is the exact analogy that God uses here about the daughters of Zion. We don't want to be this. He'll discover their secret parts, all right or make them naked, he says. And he's going to do that physically to the people of this nation, and he's going to do it to the churches. And that day, the Eternal will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments, and he uses a bunch of archaic words here for hawking our wares as a woman, trying to show off. Verse 24. And it shall come to pass, and instead of sweet smell, that of perfume, there shall be stink. And instead of a girdle, a tear. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth. And burning, instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in the war. <clears throat> and her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. Then comes the prophecy in chapter 4 of seven women taking hold of one man. Certainly, I think, referring to Revelation 2 and 3, all the churches will take hold of one man finally when they have become desolate and sitting on the ground. Brethren, we don't want to be a part of that. God says if we are meek and humble, maybe we will be hid, Zephaniah 2. It is not time for us to show off our wares. It is not time for us to try to rise up 
and show the world how spiritually beautiful we are in comparison to how ugly they are. There is no room for that in the church of God today. God condemns that. What we need to be doing instead of saying, hey, we're the best down here, we're the prettiest, we're the fairest daughter of all, we need to be repenting and humbling ourselves in sackcloth and ashes of our spiritual pride. and seeking God with our whole heart. We have to overcome the spiritual sickness. That is our biggest problem. Let's go to Jeremiah 14. Jeremiah 14. The word of the Eternal that came to Jeremiah concerning the dearth. Now, when there's a spiritual drought, and Amos says that's what we're in right now, a drought and a famine of the Word, when there is lack of food, what follows? Sickness, famine, and pestilence. Now, when we have a spiritual famine, as Amos 8 points out, we're also going to have spiritual famine and pestilence, sickness and disease. That's what's happening to the church. Judah mourns, and the gates thereof languish. They are black to the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Aren't most members of the church, wherever they happen to be, pretty perplexed about what is going on? But they don't really have many answers, so they just sort of sit there and do what the ministry says, and the ministry doesn't say much except that you're okay, we're okay, and if you stay with us, you'll be part of the kingdom of God. That's not the message of the Bible. Their nobles have sent their little ones to the waters. They came to the pits and found no water. The leaders have says, come here. You'll find all the answers. But they found no water. They are not, their thirst is not satisfied. So what do they do? They wander from group to group to group to group trying to find water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads. Don't we sometimes just feel ashamed of what has happened and ashamed of our part in it? I'm certainly ashamed of my part in a ministry that went astray. I want to rectify that. I want to change it working at it, but it seems like it's slow going, overcoming, changing, growing up, getting over a spiritual illness is not an easy thing to do, something we have to continue to work at. Because the ground is chapped, for there was no rain in the earth, the plowmen were ashamed, they covered their heads. I mean, we're supposed to be shining in the light of God's grace, are we not? And yet here we are being scattered, divided, stricken, torn, wounded, not healed. Until not one stone is left upon another in the temple. That's where it's headed. Why will we be stricken more? As God said to Israel, why will you die, O Israel? And yet people are dying spiritually left and right all around us. Are we going to die also? Or will we find some answers? 
Will we find some answers? I think we are beginning, brethren, to find some answers. Don't you? I think we've studied enough and prayed enough and searched our souls enough and been badgered about seeking God with our whole heart enough that we are beginning to respond. And I believe that God is beginning to give us spiritual understanding beyond what we have. In spite of everything that is going on, and in spite of our continuing lack spiritually, God seems to be blessing us with some understanding. Now, it is not time to get spiritually proud. It's time to think about what it has taken for us to come this far and realize that we need to work just as hard or harder that we continue to make it further up the road, further upstream. It is no time to sit back, become complacent and spiritually proud, and then have God not bless us when he has been blessing us. He has given us a lot of knowledge that a lot of the church doesn't have. Not many in the churches of God understand when the holy days ought to be, of what a true calendar ought to be. Not many understand what the new heavens and new earth are all about. Not really too many even understand who the 144,000 are. And very, very few understand the proper order of the Passover and the foot washing, and even fewer understand that Passover is the first day of unleavened bread. I do not believe God has opened a lot of these things up because we have been righteous. I believe he has opened them up because we are seeking him much harder than we used to. And if we continue to move in that direction, he will bless us with more understanding of his way. But the moment we become complacent and think we are okay and we are better than those others because we understand some things they don't, we are again in trouble. I am encouraged in the direction that things have been moving. I want to read part of a letter to you. This is from a man that I visited in prison in Texas a month or so ago. There's been some correspondence since. He says, Greetings to you, sir. I hope that this letter finds you in great health and that all is well there in the wilderness. It's a physical wilderness. I hope not a spiritual wilderness. I hope that we're beginning to be fed spiritually. God says, if you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. That is an absolute promise, brethren. If we will seek God with our whole heart, we will find answers. He will provide those answers.
I sent him sermon notes on the Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread. Here is a paragraph he wrote in response, having studied those. I have received your letter and the sermon notes that you sent. I read it all and disagreed with your findings. I made extensive notes in the side margin of the letter refuting point by point your discovery. It wasn't my discovery. I fought it at first. But God sent it here, and it is proven to be true. I have included the letter so that you may see the notes if you wish. So I sent him several pages, I don't know, 10 or 12 pages. And he refuted them all, wrote the answers that he had in the margins, and he sent that back to me. So I can see what his arguments were. I studied it hard for a couple of days and made those notes. At the end of that second day, I could not sleep, so I got up and read through all the scriptures again. You are correct about the Passover. You thought it was going the other way, didn't you? So did I when I first read this, my old heart just kind of dropped into my stomach. You are correct about the Passover. I fought hard against it and jumped through all the usual hoops the way that I was taught in order to disprove you. I have studied the Hebrew language, only a one-year basic course, and much of the things that I was required to do to justify the way we had been taught about the Passover and unleavened bread were complicated ways of looking at the language within the scriptures. A little finagle here and a little sketchy fringe type of interpretation there, it was really just very complicated and even then, not clear at all. All of that just melts away into nothing when you realize that the Passover is the first of the seven days of unleavened bread. I mean, really! Exclamation point, exclamation point. It is just so clear now. No finagling, no sketchy interpretation. God has really been opening my eyes to some things here recently. Things that it is hard to believe that I missed before. And the only explanation to it is that God had just allowed me to be blinded to them, and I believe that is so that he could show me exactly where he is working in this end time. He believes he was blinded until he saw it from here. I find that very encouraging, and yet at the same time, I find it very frightening and humbling. This man would say that God kept this from him until he could find it here. Doesn't that scare you a little bit? I don't think we're where we need to be yet, but I do believe we're on the right track. 
I believe that God is opening our eyes and showing us things. And that the reason for that is that we are truly seeking and searching. So when God does show us something, let us not react in pride, self-righteousness, thinking it came from us. This man said it came from God, through us. Now that's the way I would want it to be. That's the way that I hope it is. We want all the glory to go to God, not to us. And I think that is why he called this Coxie's army that we are. Now that was an army that was not well equipped. That was an army that sort of came out in whatever they happened to have to wear with whatever weapons they could find. They didn't know how to march, they didn't have anything to dress with, and their weapons were crude and not up to date. Another way of saying the weak and the base. If he has chosen you and me to use, to understand some things that most of the church does not yet understand, it is not because of us. It is in spite of us that his glory might be shown. And we need for sure to keep that perspective and not to be lifted up. Because he that lifts himself is abased. And he that abases himself, God will lift up. Now, which would you rather have it? Or which way would you rather have it? Let's abase ourselves. Let's humble ourselves. Let's seek God with our whole hearts and pray that he will lead us into all truth because he says in John 4:24 that we must worship in spirit and in truth. It has to be within the spirit of God and a godly attitude and it has to be in truth. And we have simply not known some truths. We are learning some. And we need to pray that God will continue to show them. And we need to continue to obey him when we find those truths, no matter what. So what if a group of people leaves over something? So what if they go elsewhere? The key is not numbers of people and money, as I've said many times, the key is obedience to God in spirit and in truth. That's where you and I have to go. Jeremiah 14 again is talking about in verse 4 and 5, the ground being chapped and no rain. That's where most of the church is today. That's where you and I have been. But God has sent us some rain. And it is in due season. It is almost the end. It is time for truth to be learned. It is time for us to learn the truths about our own human nature and ourselves. It is time for us to build in a proper way. The wild asses did stand in the high places. They snuffed up the wind like dragons. Their eyes did fail because there was no grass. O Eternal, 
though our iniquities testify against us. Is that true of you and me? Verse 7. Do it for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. That is the spiritual attitude God desires of you and me. Remember the story of the Pharisee and the publican? The Pharisee stood in the journal and said, I am the best. I am the greatest. I have everything that is needed. The publican hung his head and would not so much as look up and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, which should we be? I think that's an easy judgment. Getting there is the hard part. We need to recognize our own shortcomings and sins and our backslidings and not let ourselves be lifted up in pride, or we too will be destroyed. We certainly shall. Verse 8, O oh, the hope of Israel, the Savior thereof in time of trouble, why should you be as a stranger in the land and as a wayfaring man that turns aside to tarry for a knife? Why should you be strangers here? Why should you be as a man astonished, as a mighty man that cannot save? Why should we be beyond help and a stranger in our own land when we should be the blessed children of God? When we should have a fine church home, to put it that way. And yet it's hard to find a place where there is peace and obedience and the blessing of God. Hard to find. Yet you, O Eternal, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Leave us not. This should be our prayer. We aren't anything, but we're called by God's name. We are a purchased people belonging to him. Please don't leave us. Well, that analogy is in the Song of Songs, where Christ came knocking and she didn't want to get out of bed. It bothered her. She was comfy. I've used it before. And then when he started leaving, she jumped out of bed and ran to the door and said, Leave me not! I'm sorry. Oh, what was I thinking? Thus says the Eternal to this people, Thus have they loved to wander. They have not refrained their feet, therefore the Eternal does not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and visit their sins. Then said the Eternal to me, Pray not for this people, for their good. God knows that this needs to come on both the church and the physical nation to get us to the spiritual and physical level that we should be at. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and an oblation, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. And we see it happening spiritually to the church left and right, right now. And it isn't very far from happening to the physical nation on a physical level, and we could be a part of that as well if we're not careful. Then said I, 
Oh, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, neither shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Isn't that the message of nearly every church of God today? Everything will be just fine in this place. Follow me and everything will be fine. There are precious few who are sounding the alarm and telling God's people their sins and what we need to be doing as opposed to assuring us that as long as we're in this group, we're fine. Does that sound like what you're hearing today? No? You're hearing we're not fine. We have a long way to go. There's, even though we've made maybe some progress and maybe God is beginning to give us some spiritual rain and some understanding, we have a long way to go to be what we need to be. And we need to redouble our efforts. Then the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spoke to them. They prophesy to you a false vision and divination and a thing of nothing and the deceit of their heart. The ministry deceives itself to thinking it is righteous and doing just right and doing what it ought to be doing and lulling you to sleep with that message. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not, yet they say, sword and famine shall not be in this land, by sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. Those who have that message are staying behind in the tribulation and will be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and they shall have none to bury them, them, their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness upon them. The spiritual wickedness. God resists the proud. You know, what do you and I think of as the worst sins? Killing, lying, adultery. Those aren't necessarily the worst sins. God hates pride, spiritual pride, above almost any sin. He resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The people to whom... Oh, let's see, I've already read this. Verse 17, Therefore you shall say this word to them, Let my eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease. He's telling us to cry out and pray and have tears night and day without ceasing. That's what we ought to be doing. For the virgin daughter of my people is broken with a great breach, with a very grievous blow. The breach is in the wall. The wall's been knocked down. The defense is gone. The world has come in. If I go forth into the field, then behold the slain with the sword. And if I enter into the city, then behold them that are sick with famine. The whole church and the whole nation are sick from head to foot. Yes, both the prophet and the priest go about into a land that they know not. They're just wandering around, not knowing where they're going, not having direction, not having guidance. 
The only place you can find it is in here, and I submit that most of the ministry does not have its head in this book, nor do most of the people. They're preaching the same old things over and over and over again without saying, man, something's wrong here. I better find the answers. And if you start seeking, you will find. If we don't have all the answers yet, then what should we be doing? Seeking and finding. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed Zion? Why have you smitten us and there is no healing for us? We need to find an answer to that. We look for peace and there is no good. And for the time of healing, and behold, trouble. Aren't we looking for the time of healing? I believe we are. Most of us are sick in some way, physically as well as spiritually. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your namesake. Do not disgrace your throne of your glory. Remember, break not your covenant with us. Please, God, don't forget us. You've called us. You've made us a part of your church. We've sinned. We've come short of your glory. We've been spiritually proud and complacent. Help us, seek us, seek you with our whole heart, and don't forget us. Are there any among the vanities of the Gentiles that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are not you he, O Lord, our God? Therefore we will wait upon you, for you have made all these things. God will answer in due time if we do our part. I think that's an incredible chapter. Let's go to Hosea 7. Hosea 7. I'd better jump on my horse and use the spurs here. Hosea 7, verse 1. When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered and the wickedness of Samaria. Ephraim in Jeremiah 31 is called the firstborn. We are the first fruits, in that sense, the firstborn, part of the 144,000. So iniquity was discovered in the church, not just in physical Israel. For they commit falsehood, giving lip service to God, but playing along with this world as much as they think they can do, as much as they can be a part of it, without crossing whatever line of conscience they have drawn. We still want to play footsie with the world, don't we? We want to do as many of the things of this world as we think we can and still barely get into God's kingdom. They consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about there before my face. They make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lives. They are all adulterers, as an oven heated by the baker, who ceases from raising after he has kneaded the dough until it be leavened. In the day of our king, the princes have made him sick with the bottles of wine. He stretched out his hand with scorners, for they have made ready their heart like an oven, while they lie in wait, 
Their baker sleeps all the night, and the morning it burns as a flaming fire. They are all hot as an oven, and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen, leaders are dis disappearing. There is none among them that calls to me. Not truly calling out to God. Ephraim, he has mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Just burning on the bottom, but not really cooking and producing something that is truly edible. You ever had someone hand you a cake that was just charred on the bottom? Not nearly so pleasant as one that's been cooked correctly. And the firstborn, 144,000, aren't cooking correctly. We put our feet in the fire. We're burning from the bottom up. Ezekiel 34. Our major problem is a spiritual one. He addresses the ministry here, the shepherds, in chapter 34. It's one that's quite familiar, I think, to most of the people of God at this point. Verse 3, you eat the fat, you clothe you with the wool, you kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. It's okay for the ministry to have, but they'd better fulfill their responsibility. The diseased have you not strengthened. Those who are spiritually sick have not been given what they need to restore them to health. Neither have you healed that which was sick on a spiritual level and ultimately on a physical level. Neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. That's the way the ministry was. That's the way much of the ministry still is. And they were scattered because there is no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. People are just being swallowed up back into this world, its world's religions, giving up. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. Should we be trying to convert the world, or should we be seeking to help God's wounded, sick, broken people? Should that not be our message? Should that not be our approach, our focus? Help repair the bride, get her ready, not just leave her sick and wounded and broken. And most of the church don't want to hear that message. But that's the message we need to be putting out. Maybe we need to be expanding that. We need to get our website back up and going. Once in a while someone volunteers to do something but then does nothing. When will we get the vision? When will we get the perspective? When will we do what we need to do? When will Daryl sit down and do some writing that needs to be done, that it might be published where it needs to be published? When will you find a way to help? 
We need to do a lot of things physically here on this place, and I think it's important that it be built. But we also don't need to ignore those who are hurting and sick and afflicted. They need to be given the correct spiritual drink. The ministry today and the greater churches of God is not giving them what they need to help heal them. Have you ever had someone hand you something they thought you might like and you'd say, tastes like medicine to me? <laughs> Sometimes what we need is a pretty bitter dose. And we would prefer to drink something a little more palatable to the taste. The church does not want to hear a message of repentance. But if we are to be healed spiritually, that's what we have to hear. It needs to start here. Maybe God has not given us an avenue to spread this message much, because we're not ready for that. Maybe we're not healed sufficiently ourselves to be worthy to heal anyone else. We need to think about that. Maybe when we are healed spiritually enough, God will open some doors. We can push, and maybe we should, on some doors. But will they open until we have ourselves where we ought to be, where we're walking by the Spirit? Micah 6 Can we heal others when we've not been healed ourselves? I'm trying to give you information here which will help heal you and make you spiritually healthy. This is what it takes. If you have a broken bone and somebody grabs hold of it to set it, it hurts. I've been there, done that. It hurts. But it can't heal properly until it's set. It's got to be lined up right or it won't heal. We've got to get lined up right or we won't heal. Micah 6, here I want verse 10. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is abominable? Are we measuring things correctly yet? Spiritually, shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with a bag of deceitful weights? When we are still deceiving ourselves as to our spiritual condition, shall God just put us over there on the righteous side of the scale and overlook it? For the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Those who are supposed to be spiritually rich and set themselves up to appear to be are full of lies and self-deceit and violence upon the people of God. We just read about that in Ezekiel 34. Therefore also will I make you sick in smiting you and making you desolate because of your sins. Aren't we heart sick? Aren't we sick at our stomachs over what happened to the church? What are we going to do about it? You shall eat but not be satisfied, and your casting down shall be in the midst of you, 
and you shall take hold, but shall not deliver. And that which you deliver will I give up to the sword. You shall sow, but you shall not reap. You shall tread the olives, but you shall not anoint you with oil. And sweet wine, but shall not drink wine. God is making us sick because of our spiritual pride and vanity and thinking we had need of nothing. Malachi 1. Malachi 1. Verse 7. Well, verse 6. End of it. O priests that despise my name. And you say, wherein have we despised your name? We worship you, Lord. How have we despised your name? You offer polluted bread upon my altar. What is bread? Word of God. Polluted doctrine, polluted bread. And this is written to the end time church. If we had everything we needed under Herbert Armstrong, why then are we torn apart? God says we offered polluted bread on the altar. That must mean that we need to learn some things and produce proper bread. And you say, wherein have we polluted you? And then you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now to your governor. Will he be pleased with you or accept your person, says the Lord of hosts? Would our leaders today in the church like it if we brought them things that were rotten? Somebody brought me some produce out of their garden the other day, some very lovely things we had for dinner last night. And I appreciated them very much. They were wonderful to the taste and good for the health. But if they'd set them out in the sun and let them rot for a week and then brought them to me, I wouldn't have been too pleased, probably. Especially if my wife had gone ahead and cooked them and served them to me and they'd been rotten. Yet we offer contemptible bread before God and say, what's wrong with the way I pray? What's wrong with the way I study? What's wrong with the way I am? Now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious to us. This has been by your means. This is our fault. Will he regard your persons, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for nothing? Neither do you candle fire on my altar for nothing. Is our religion all in vain? Does it mean nothing? Are we here for the wrong reasons? Is all of this going to fail and be futile? Is it just vanity? I have no pleasure in you, says the Eternal of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. We could go on, but God says it's a weariness to him in verse 13. Or no, we say it's a weariness. Excuse me. It's just so hard. Why do I have to do all this? Why can't I just float along like everyone else? Well, I'll tell you what, you float along and you're going to go out to sea and drown. You've got to swim upstream. You've got to go against the current. Any old fish can swim downstream. I heard that from Herbert Armstrong over and over and over again. 
We've got to put effort into swimming against the current. And the current is to go downhill into spiritual self-righteousness and think, I'm fine, I'm okay, I'll be a part of the kingdom of God. Being here guarantees you absolutely nothing. I told you that before. It's between you and God. Sitting in this congregation does you no good unless you do your spiritual part. It doesn't do you any good to be in any of the daughters of Zion unless you do your part. Hosea 5. Hosea 5. I want to get through two or three more here, and then we'll wrap this up, hopefully, before the tape goes out. Hosea, chapter 5. Wouldn't you rather get this over with this week than have to continue it next week? This part of it. Hosea 5, verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah saw his wound... Then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and sent to King Jareb, yet could he not heal you nor cure you of your wound. Wrong response. When we see our sickness, brethren, where are we going to turn? To this world and its solutions? To the Gentile Assyrian? Or will we turn to God? Our physical nation will turn to the Assyrian at some point. Maybe when I get into that subject of why the economy is still up in spite of everything that seems like it should collapse, we'll discuss this some, but not today. Let's be sure we have the right response. Let's go to Lamentations right after the book of Jeremiah. Here's the Lamentations of Jeremiah. I could read this whole book, and it would fit very well, but I want to go to chapter 2 for sake of time. How has Eternal covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger and cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and not, not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger? He goes on to show... Verse 6, he has violently taken away his tabernacle, his church, as if it were of a garden. He has destroyed his places of the assembly. Haven't the congregations around the world diminished, disappeared for the most part? The eternal has caused the solemn feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. People are, by the droves, going away from these. And has despised in the indignation of his anger the king and the priest. The ministry can pray to God and nothing happens, for the most part, through the church. The eternal is cast off his altar. He has abhorred his sanctuary. Isn't that why he tells in Revelation 11 the two witnesses to go to the altar and measure it first? Measure the church? Don't worry about the world. Take care of the church. If he tells them to do that, certainly shouldn't the rest of us be focusing on that as well? If that's the end-time focus of God and the two witnesses right at the end, I certainly think we ought to be thinking about that pretty seriously. Verse 8, The Eternal has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. Hasn't he torn down the wall of protection around the church? Read Isaiah 5. 
Didn't we recently have a sermon or two about building a wall, repairing the breaches, fasting for the right reasons so that we can be the repairers of the breach? Isaiah 58. He stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore he made the rampart and the wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates are sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. Look what happened to worldwide. Her prophets also find no vision from the Lord. They don't have anything to say. Verse 10, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground and keep silence. I heard one quote not long ago where someone in one of the churches said to a minister, when are you going to preach epicy? And he said, when they tell me what we believe about prophecy. I've quoted that once before, I think. They don't have an answer. So they sit in silence and tell the people, it's okay, honey, you'll be all right. But the children are concerned. Verse 12, they say to their mothers, where is corn and wine? Where is the spiritual food to make us grow? Verse 13, what thing shall I take to witness for you? What thing shall I liken you to, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I equal you to, that I make them comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? What can I say to you that will make you feel better when you're like you are? For your breach is great like the sea. Who can heal you? And yet he tells people who will fast for the right reasons that they will be called the healers of the breach. I want to be one of those healers. I want you to be some of those healers. Let's not let this escape us. Your prophets have seen vain and foolish things for you, and they have not discovered your iniquity to turn, you away, to turn away your captivity. They're not telling people to come out of Babylon and change their way of living, thinking, eating, breathing, and doing. They don't discover your iniquity, but have seen for you false burdens and causes of banishment. They're blaming the wrong things for what has happened to us. They're not telling us our self-righteousness and spiritual pride is what was our downfall. All that pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? Give me a break, they'll say. Look at these people. Same thing they did to Christ, except he was the healer, or would become that. We're laughing stock. Let's go to Ezekiel, I mean to Zechariah 11. Zechariah 11. This is a chapter about the destruction of three large churches. It's about three shepherds of large churches being cut off in one month. But let's notice verse 15. 
And the Eternal said to me, Take to you yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. He said, Zechariah, I want you to, to mimic here a foolish shepherd. For in time I will raise up a shepherd in the land that shall not visit those that be cut off, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that that stands still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Is that not what the ministry essentially is doing? Is that why some have become so bitter and so bitter that they cannot even see properly spiritually anymore because of the bitterness? Woe to the idle shepherd, and that means a good-for-nothing or vain shepherd or an impious or perverse shepherd in the Hebrew. Woe to the vain shepherd that leaves the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm, and upon his right eye, his arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. Will not be able to see anything clearly anymore. Because of not providing the people what they need to hear. I hope you hear what you need here to help heal you and bring you to where you should be. I think I'll close this section in Revelation 18. One we're very familiar with. Revelation 18, verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. That's you and me. Come out of her that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. What has been her attitude? Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double to her double according to her works. In the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. God is about to bring down on this nation, the physical nation, such horror as has never been experienced on the face of this earth. And we will be partakers in that if we don't come out of her. How much she has glorified herself. Doesn't that sound like Revelation 3? I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. It's a spiritual attitude as well in the church as in the world. And live deliciously so much torment and sorrow. As much as we have prospered, give her the same amount of torment. For she says in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Is not that the spiritual attitude of most in the church today? Everyone else is a Laodicean but me. I'm okay. That is probably the most dangerous thinking that a church member today could possibly have. Because that kind of thinking is what permeates our nation physically and our church spiritually. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. Do not be spiritually sick 
be healed. Why will you die, O Israel? Why will you be stricken more? Repent, change, seek God with your whole heart, be healed. 